Welcome back. Today we are going to be reading chapter 39 in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 39 Francie and Neely were confirmed in May. Francie was almost 14 and a half years old, and Neely was just a year younger. Sissy, who was an expert seamstress, made Francie's simple white muslin dress. Katie managed to buy her white kid slippers and a pair of long white silk stockings. They were Francie's first silk stockings. Neely wore the black suit he got for his father's funeral. There was a legend in the neighborhood that any three wishes made on that day would come true. One had to be an impossible wish, another a wish that you could make true yourself, and the third had to be a wish for when you grew up. Francie's impossible wish was that her straight brown hair change into golden curly hair like Neely's. Her second wish was that she'd have a nice speaking voice like Mama and Evie and Sissy. And her third wish for when she was grown up was that she'd travel all over the world. Neely wished, one, that he'd become very wealthy, two, that he'd get better marks on his report card, and three, that he wouldn't drink like Papa when he grew up. There was an iron-bound convention in Brooklyn that children must have their picture taken by a regular photographer when they were confirmed. Katie couldn't afford to have pictures made. She had to be content with letting Flossie Gaddis, who had a box camera, take a snapshot. Floss posed them on the edge of the sidewalk and snapped the picture, unaware that a trolley lumbered by at the instant of exposure. She had the snapshot enlarged and framed and presented it to Francie as a confirmation day present. Sissy was there when the picture arrived. Katie held it and they examined it over her shoulder. Francie had never been photographed before. For the first time, she saw herself as others saw her. She was standing stiff and straight on the edge of the curb, her back to the gutter, and her dress blowing sideways in the wind. Neely stood close to her, was a head taller, and looked very wealthy and handsome in his freshly pressed black suit. The sun had slanted over the roofs in such a way that Neely was in the sun and his face was clear and bright, while Francie looked dark and angry in the shadow. Behind both was the blurred trolley going by. Sissy said, I bet that's the only confirmation picture in the world with a trolley car in it. It's a good picture, said Katie. They look more natural standing on the street than in front of the picture man's cardboard church window. She hung it. She hung it up over the mantelpiece. What name did you take, Neely? Sissy asked. Papa's, 
Now I'm Cornelius John Nolan. That's a good name for a surgeon, commented Katie. I took Mama's name, said Francie importantly. Now my full name is Mary Frances Catherine Nolan. Francie waited. Mama did not say that was a good name for a writer. Katie, do you have any pictures of Johnny? Sissy asked. No, just the one of both of us taken on our wedding day. Why? Nothing. Only time passes so, doesn't it? Yes, sighed Katie. That's one of the few things we can be sure of. Confirmation was over, and Francie didn't have to go to instruction anymore. She had an extra hour daily, which she was devoting to the novel she was writing, to prove to Miss Gardner, the new English teacher, that she did know about beauty. Since her father's death, Francie had stopped writing about birds and trees and my impressions. Because she missed him so, she had taken to writing little stories about him. She tried to show that, in spite of his shortcomings, he had been a good father and a kindly man. She had written three such stories, which were marked C instead of the usual A. The fourth came back with a line telling her to remain after school. All the children had gone home. Miss Gardner and Francie were alone in the room with the big dictionary in it. Francie's last four compositions lay on Miss Gardner's desk. What's happened to your writing, Francis? asked Miss Gardner. I don't know. You were one of my best pupils. You wrote so prettily. I enjoyed your compositions. But these last ones, she flicked at them contemptuously. I looked up the spelling and took pains with my penmanship and I'm referring to your subject matter. You said we could choose our own subjects. But poverty, starvation, and drunkenness are ugly subjects to choose. We all admit these things exist, but one doesn't write about them. What does one write about? Unconsciously, Francie picked up the teacher's phraseology. One delves into the imagination and finds beauty there. The writer, like the artist, must strive for beauty always. What is beauty? asked the child. I can think of no better definition than Keats. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. Francie took her courage into her two hands and said, Those stories are the truth. Nonsense! exploded Miss Gardner. Then, softening her tone, she continued, By truth, we mean things like the stars always being there, and the sun always rising, and the true nobility of man, and mother love, and love for one's country, she ended 
anticlimatically. I see, said Francie. As Miss Gardner continued talking, Francie answered her bitterly in her mind. Drunkenness is neither truth nor beauty. It's a vice. Drunkards belong in jail, not in stories. And poverty, there is no excuse for that. There's work enough for all who want it. People are poor because they're too lazy to work. There's nothing beautiful about laziness. Imagine mama lazy. Hunger is not beautiful. It is also unnecessary. We have well-organized charities. No one need go hungry. Francie ground her teeth. Her mother hated the word charity above any word in the language, and she had brought up her children to hate it too. Now, I'm not a snob, stated Miss Gardner. I do not come from a wealthy family. My father was a minister with a very small salary. But it was a salary, Miss Gardner. And the only help my mother had was a succession of untrained maids, mostly girls from the country. I see you were poor, Miss Gardner, poor with a maid. Many times we were without a maid, and my mother had to do all the housework herself. And my mother, Miss Gardner, has to do all her own housework, and yes, ten times more cleaning than that. I wanted to go to the state university, but we couldn't afford it. My father had to send me to a small denominational college. But admit, you had no trouble going to college. And believe me, you're poor when you go to such a college. I know what hunger is too. Time and again, my father's salary was held up and there was no money for food. Once we had to live on tea and toast for three days. So you know what it is to be hungry too. But I'd be a dull person if I wrote about nothing but being poor and hungry, wouldn't I? Francie didn't answer. Wouldn't I? repeated Miss Gardner emphatically. Yes, ma'am. Now, your play for graduation. She took a thin manuscript from her desk drawer. Some parts are very good indeed. Other parts, you've gone off. For instance, she turned a page. Here, fate says, and youth, what is thy ambition? And the boy answers, I would be a healer. I would take the broken bodies of men and mend them. Now that's a beautiful idea, Francis. But you spoil it here. Fate. That's what thou wouldst be, but see, this is what thou shalt be. Light shines on old man's soldering bottom of ash can. Old man, ah, 
Once I thought to be a mender of men, now I'm a mender of... Miss Gardner looked up suddenly. You didn't by any chance mean that to be funny, did you, Francis? Oh, no, ma'am. After our little talk, you can see why we can't use your play for graduation. I see. Francie's heart all but broke. Now, Beatrice Williams has a cute idea. A fairy waves a wand, and girls and boys in costume come out, and there's one for each holiday in the year, and each one says a little poem about the holiday he represents. It's an excellent idea, but unfortunately, Beatrice cannot make rhymes. Wouldn't you like to take that idea and write the verses? Beatrice wouldn't mind. We can put a note in the program that the idea comes from her. That's fair enough, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. But I don't want to use her ideas. I want to use my own. That's commendable, of course. Well, I won't insist. She stood up. I've taken all this time with you because I honestly believe that you have promise. Now that we've talked things out, I'm sure you'll stop writing those sordid little stories. Sordid. Francie turned the word over. It was not in her vocabulary. What does that mean, sordid? What did I tell you when you don't know a word? sing-songed Miss Gardner drolly. Oh, I forgot. Francie went to the big dictionary and looked up the word sordid. Filthy. Filthy? She thought of her father wearing a fresh dicky and collar every day of his life and shining his worn shoes as often as twice a day. Dirty. Papa had his own mug at the barber shop. Base. Francie passed that up, not knowing exactly what it meant. Gross. Never. Papa was a dancer. He was slender and quick. His body wasn't gross. Also mean and low. She remembered a hundred and one little tendernesses and acts of thoughtfulness on the part of her father. She remembered how everyone had loved him so. Her face got hot. She couldn't see the next words because the page turned red under her eyes. She turned on Miss Gardner, her face twisted with fury. Don't you ever use that word about us. Us? asked Miss Gardner blankly. We were talking about your compositions. Why, Francis? Her voice was shocked. I'm surprised. A well-behaved girl like you? What would your mother say if she knew you had been impertinent to your teacher? Francie was frightened. Impertinence to a teacher was almost a reformatory offense in Brooklyn. Please excuse me. Please excuse me, she repeated abjectly. I didn't mean it. I understand, said Miss Gardner gently. She put her arm around Francie and led her to the door. Our little talk has made an impression on you, I see. Sordid is an ugly word, and I'm glad you resented my using it. 
It shows that you understand. Probably you don't like me anymore, but please believe that I spoke for your own good. Someday you'll remember what I said and you'll thank me for it. Francie wished adults would stop telling her that. Already the load of thanks in the future was weighing her down. She figured she'd have to spend the best years of her womanhood hunting up people to tell them that they were right and to thank them. Miss Gardner handed her the sordid compositions and the play, saying, When you get home, burn these in the stove. Apply the match to them yourself. And as the flames rise, keep saying, I am burning ugliness. I am burning ugliness. Walking home from school, Francie tried to figure the whole thing out. She knew Miss Gardner wasn't mean. She had spoken for Francie's good. Only it didn't seem good to Francie. She began to understand that her life might seem revolting to some educated people. She wondered when she got educated whether she'd be ashamed of her background. Would she be ashamed of her people? Ashamed of handsome Papa who had been so light-hearted, kind and understanding? Ashamed of brave and truthful Mama who was so proud of her own mother even though Grandma couldn't read or write? Ashamed of Neely who was such a good honest boy? No! No! If being educated would make her ashamed of what she was, then she wanted none of it. But I'll show that Miss Gardner, she vowed. I'll show her that I've got an imagination. I certainly will show her. She started her novel that day. Its heroine was Sherry Nola, a girl conceived born and brought up in sweltering luxury. The story was called This Is I, and it was the untrue story of Francie's life. Francie had 20 pages written now. So far it ran to minute descriptions of the lush furnishings of Sherry's house, rhapsodies over Sherry's exquisite clothes, and course-by-course accounts of fabulous meals consumed by the heroine. When it was finished, Francie planned to ask Sissy's John to take it over to his shop and get it published for her. Francie had a fine dream about how it would be when she presented her book to Miss Gardner. The scene was all worked out in her mind. She went over the dialogue. Francie, as she gives the book to Miss Gardner. I believe you'll find nothing sordid in this. Please consider it as my terms work. I hope you won't mind its being published. Miss Gardner's jaw drops open. Francie takes no notice. It's a bit easier to read print, don't you think? As Miss Gardner reads, Francie stares out window unconcernedly. Miss Gardner, after reading, Why, Francis, this is wonderful. Francie, what? With a start of remembrance. Oh, the novel. I dashed it off at odd moments. 
It doesn't take long to write things of which you know nothing. When you write of actual things, it takes longer because you have to live them first. Francie crossed that out. She wouldn't want Miss Gardner to suspect her feelings had been hurt. She rewrote it. Francie. What? Recalling. Oh, the novel. I'm glad you like it. Miss Gardner, timidly. Francis, could. could I ask you to autograph it for me? Francie. But of course. Miss Gardner uncaps her fountain pen and presents it, pen point end towards herself, to Francie. Francie writes, Compliments of M. Francis K. Nolan. Miss Gardner, examining autograph. What a distinctive signature. Francie, it's merely my legal name. Miss Gardner, timidly. Francis, Francie, please feel free to speak to me as in the old days. Miss Gardner, could I ask you to write to my friend Muriel Gardner above your signature? Francie, after a barely perceptible pause. And why not? With a twisted smile. I've always written what you asked me to write. Writes inscription. Miss Gardner, low whisper. Thank you. Francie. Miss Gardner, not that it matters now, but would you grade this work? Just for old time's sake. Miss Gardner takes red pencil, writes large A plus on book. It was such a rosy dream that Francie started the next chapter in a fever of excitement. She'd write and write and get it done quickly so the dream could come true. She wrote, Parker, Shiri Nola asks her personal maid, what's Cook giving us for dinner tonight? Breast of pheasant under glass, I believe, with hothouse asparagus and imported mushrooms and pineapple mousse, Miss Sherry. It sounds horribly dull, observed Sherry. Yes, Miss Sherry, agreed the maid respectfully. You know, Parker, I'd like to indulge a whim of mine. Your whims are the household's commands. I'd like to see a lot of simple desserts and choose my dinner from among them. Please bring me a dozen Charlotte Russe, some strawberry shortcake, and a quart of ice cream. Make it chocolate. A dozen ladyfingers and a box of French chocolates. Very good, Miss Sherry. A drop of water fell on the page. Francie looked up. No, the roof wasn't leaking. It was merely her mouth watering. She was very, very hungry. She went to the stove and looked into the pot. It had a pale bone in it, surrounded by water. There was some bread in the bread box. It was a bit hard, but better than nothing. She cut a slice and poured a cup of coffee and dipped the bread into the coffee to soften it. As she ate, she read what she had just written. She made an astonishing discovery. 
Look here, Francine Nolan, she told herself. In this story, you're writing exactly the same thing you wrote in those stories Miss Gardner didn't like. Here, you're writing that you're very hungry, only you're writing it in a twisted, roundabout, silly way. Furious with the novel, she ripped the copybook apart and stuffed it into the stove. When the flames began licking on it, her fury increased, and she ran and got her box of manuscripts from under her bed. Carefully putting aside the four about her father, she crammed the rest of them into the stove. She was burning all of her pretty A compositions. Sentences came out clearer for an instant before a sheet blackened and crumbled. A giant poplar, tall and high, serene and cool against the sky. Another, softly the blue skies arch overhead. Tis a perfect October day. The end of another sentence. Hollyhocks like distilled sunsets and larkspur like concentrate of heaven. I never saw a poplar, and I read somewhere about the sky arching, and I never saw those flowers except in a seed catalog, and I got A's because I was a good liar. She poked the papers to make them burn faster. As they changed into ashes, she chanted, I am burning ugliness, I am burning ugliness. As the last flame died away, she announced dramatically to the water boiler, There goes my writing career. All of a sudden, she was frightened and lonely. She wanted her father. She wanted her father. He couldn't be dead. He just couldn't be. In a little while, he'd come running up the stairs singing Molly Malone. He'd open the door and he'd say, Hello, prima donna. And she'd say, Papa, I had a terrible dream. I dreamed you were dead. Then she'd tell him what Miss Gardner had said, and he'd find the words to convince her that everything was all right. She waited, listening. Maybe it was a dream. But no. No dream lasted that long. It was real. Papa was gone forever. She put her head down on the table and sobbed. Mama doesn't love me the way she loves Neely, she wept. I tried and tried to make her love me. I sit close to her and go wherever she goes and do whatever she asks me to do. But I can't make her love me the way Papa loved me. Then she saw her mother's face in the trolley car when Mama sat with her head back and her eyes closed. She remembered how white and tired Mama had looked. Mama did love her. Of course she did. Only she couldn't show it in the ways that Papa could. And Mama was good. Here she was. Here she expected the baby any minute and she was still out working. Supposing Mama died when she had the baby? Francie's blood turned icy at the thought. What would Neely and she do without Mama? Where could they go? Evie and Sissy were too poor to take them. They'd have no place to live. 
They had no one in all the world but Mama. Dear God, Francie prayed, don't let Mama die. I know that I told Neely that I didn't believe in you, but I do. I do. I just said that. Don't punish Mama. She didn't do anything bad. Don't take her away because I said I didn't believe in you. If you let her live, I'll give you my writing. I'll never write another story again if you'll only let her live. Holy Mary, ask your son, Jesus, to ask God not to let my mother die. But she felt that her prayer was of no use. God remembered that she had said that she didn't believe in him, and he'd punish her by taking Mama as he had taken Papa. She became hysterical with terror and thought of her mother as already dead. She rushed out of the flat to look for her. Katie wasn't cleaning in their house. She went into the second house and ran up the three flights of stairs calling, Mama! She wasn't in that house. Francie went into the third and last house. Mama wasn't on the first floor. Mama wasn't on the second floor. There was no floor left. If Mama wasn't there, then she was dead. She screamed, Mama! Mama! I'm up here, came Katie's quiet voice from the third floor. Don't holler so. Francie was so relieved that she all but collapsed. She didn't want her mother to know she had been crying. She searched for her handkerchief. Not having it, she dried her eyes on her petticoat and walked up the last flight, slowly. Hello, Mama. Has something happened to Neely? No, Mama. She always thinks of Neely first. Well, hello then, said Katie, smiling. Katie surmised that something had gone wrong in school to upset Francie. Well, if she wanted to tell her... Do you like me, Mama? I'd be a funny person, wouldn't I, if I didn't like my children? Do you think I'm as good-looking as Neely? She waited anxiously for Mama's answer because she knew that Mama never lied. Mama's answer was a long time in coming. You have very pretty hands and nice long thick hair. But do you think I'm as good looking as Neely? Persisted Francie, wanting her mother to lie. Look, Francie, I know that you're getting at something in a roundabout way and I'm too tired to figure it out. Have a little patience until after the baby gets here. I like you and Neely, and I think you're both nice enough looking children. Now please try not to worry me. Francie was instantly contrite. Pity twisted her heart as she saw her mother, so soon to bear a child, sprawled awkwardly on her hands and knees. She knelt beside her mother. Get up, Mama, and let me finish this haul. I have time. She plunged her hand into the pail of water. No, exclaimed Katie sharply. She took Francie's hand out of the water and dried it on her apron. Don't put your hands in that water. It has soda and lye in it. 
Look what it's done to my hands. She held out her shapely but work-scarred hands. I don't want your hands to get like that. I want you to have nice hands always. Besides, I'm almost finished. If I can't help, can I sit on the stairs and watch? If you've nothing better to do. Francie sat watching her mother. It was so good to be there and know that Mama was alive and close by. Even the scrubbing made a soft, a safe, pleasant sound. Swish, a swish, a swish, a swish, a went the brush. Slup, a slup, a slup, went the rag wiping up. Clunk, flump, went the brush and rag as Mama dropped them into the pail. Shrunk, shrunk went the pail as Mama pushed it to the next area. Haven't you any girlfriends to talk to, Francie? No, I hate women. That's not natural. It would do you good to talk things over with girls your own age. Have you any women friends, Mama? No, I hate women, said Katie. See, you're just like me. But I had a girlfriend once, and I got your father through her. So you see, a girlfriend comes in handy sometimes. She spoke jokingly, but her scrub brush seemed to swish out. You go your way, I'll go my way. She fought back her tears. Yes, she continued, you need friends. You never talk to anybody but Neely and me and read your books and write your stories. I've given up writing. Katie knew then that whatever was on Francie's mind had to do with her compositions. Did you get a bad mark on a composition today? No, lied Francie, amazed as always by her mother's guesswork. She got up. I guess it's time for me to go to McGarrity's now. Wait, Katie put her brush and scrub rag in the pail. I'm finished for the day. She held out her hands. Help me get up. Francie grasped her mother's hands. Katie pulled heavily on them as she got to her feet clumsily. Walk back home with me, Francie. Francie carried the pail. Katie put one hand on the banister and put her other arm around Francie's shoulder. She leaned heavily on the girl as she walked downstairs slowly, Francie keeping time with her mother's uncertain steps. Francie, I expect the baby any day now, and I'd feel better if you were never very far away from me. Stay close to me, and when I'm working, Come looking for me from time to time to see that I'm all right. I can't tell you how much I'm counting on you. I can't count on Neely because he's a boy. Because a boy is no use at a time like this. I need you badly now, and I feel safer when I know you're nearby. So stay close to me for a while. A great tenderness for her mother came into Francie's heart. I won't ever go away from you, Mama, she said. That's my good girl. Katie pressed her shoulder. Maybe, thought Francie, she doesn't love me as much as she loves Neely, 
but she needs me more than she needs him, and I guess being needed is almost as good as being loved, maybe better.